But if you were here last week, uh, you will know that I've started a series, um, which I'm going to do for kind of, it'll run for five weeks, um, and it's called New Year Revolution, 31 Days to Shape Your Life, based on a TV program, New Year's Revolution, 31 Days to Change Your Life, and I just changed the word change to shape, and the idea behind it really is that I believe that God has given me a verse, if you like, a watchword for us as a church for the whole of the year. And what I want to do is to kind of live in this verse for the next five weeks, which when I first looked at it over, well, back in the last year and over Christmas, I thought five weeks on one verse. But actually, as I've dived into it more, I, in fact, at the nine o'clock service, I had to cut out a lot of what I wanted to say because there was so much that I think God has given me. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this, this, this one kind of verse. And the idea is that, you know, the, the idea of New Year's resolutions and changing your life is often about outside in. It's about like, I'd like to lose weight, so I'd like to do that and that. Rather than inside out, something that motivates us from the inside. And I believe that God calls us to live out our lives from our virtues, from our principles, from our values, inside out. That's how we're meant to live. And um, this verse that we're going to look at is really based around four kind of virtues. That if we could live these virtues out, okay, through this year, it will shape our life. It will shape our life. In incredible ways. And so um, week one last week was an introduction. If you weren't here, please get the, uh, download the podcast or get a CD because I can't recap on the whole of the week. Week two, uh, I'm calling it So What? And uh, what we're going to look at is this whole idea of sowing seed. Okay, I'm just called it So What? And it's based on the verse from Hosea 10 verse 12, which is going to come up on the screens. And I'd love us to read this out again. I know we've done it many times, but there's something really powerful about speaking out the Word of God. You do know that, don't you? There's something about when you use your tongue, which the Bible says is a very, very important, even though small part of your body... And we'll look at that probably in a couple of months' time. Um, When you speak out the living word of God, there's something really important and powerful about that. So we're going to read this out together, if that's okay. So if you look at the screens, and let's declare it together. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. And break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. Fantastic. Just over a week ago, I was um, at a conference that I'd gone to for a day. It was a three-day conference, and I just went for a day. I won't go into why, not important, but on the um, uh, schedule for the day, there were a whole load of seminars you could choose from, and one caught my eye, which said this. The seminar was entitled, How to Get Along with Your Work Colleagues Without Wanting to Strangle Them, and I just thought, I'll go to that. No reason in particular, okay, please don't read anything to it, but I went along to it. And speaking there was this guy who was a very engaging speaker, and uh, he was a, a, he's a Christian, but a life coach and a consultant and behavioral psychologist and all this kind of stuff. And so I listened to his stuff, and I believe all truth is God's truth, okay? And I believe you can learn from anywhere and anything. You have to filter it through the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit, Okay, but I think you can learn from anywhere. And I want to pass on to you uh, with a little bit of amendment because I don't fully ascribe to all that he was saying, uh, some of the stuff that he was sharing uh, with us on that day. And basically what he did was he was talking about how to like, not strangle your work colleagues, which is always a good thing not to do. Do you know what I mean? In my experience. And uh, he put a, a, a formula up on, on the, the screen, which was basically E plus R 
equals O. Behavioral psychologists love this kind of stuff, all right, as well as mathematicians. E plus R equals O. Doesn't matter what it is, it's a formula, it's got to be good, all right, that kind of thing. But E actually stands for event, R stands for response, and just take a wild guess at what O might stand for. Outcome. Very good. Some of you have been there and read the book and touched the screen. Fantastic. So event plus R, E plus R equals O. In other words, his kind of philosophy or the idea behind this is that whatever happens in life is an event. Our response to that can determine what the outcome is likely to be. Now, he gave a great illustration from the, uh, the program Neighbours from Hell. All right, and there's basically these two houses next to each other, two, two neighbours next to each other. And on the one side, the fellow who lives in this house loves bird watching. So he has binoculars and through the window, he watches birds. And one day, he's watching this really interesting bird, you know, <laughs> all people. And, and he's watching the bird and he's got the binoculars and he's following the flight, the trajectory of the bird up in the sky. And as the bird drops down, he follows the trajectory of, of the flight of the bird. And then as it comes in front of the next door neighbor's window, he's just following the bird. But at that moment, the old lady living next door is looking through her window and sees this man looking into her window with his binoculars. All right? So she says to her 50-year-old son, who happens to be there, I think he, he lived there, I think, she says, listen, listen, never guess what, next-door neighbour, he's spying on me with his binoculars. The guy says, not going to stand for this. So he says, right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go out to the gardens and we're going to buy fast-growing conifers. And that's what he did. He brought fast-growing conifers, planted them, and in a few weeks, they shot up past the windows, blocking next-door neighbour. The problem is now, next-door neighbour can't see through their window because of these trees. So they said, we're not going to stand for that. So they go next door, knock on the door. You're going to have to chop them down. We're not chopping them down. You were spying on us. No, we weren't. It escalated. It's now in court. To date, they between them have spent over £50,000 on this dispute. And the interesting thing is that what this fella said is that when they interviewed the guy, the the son, who who first said, we're not going to stand for this, this is what he said. When my mother told me what was happening, we had no choice but to do this. Event plus R equals O. Our response to an event will determine, largely determine, what the outcome will be. Now when you think about it, this verse that we're looking at from the Bible is all about response, isn't it? And actually, I want to suggest to you that these four words that we're going to look at, sow, reap, break, and seek, are all response. They're all response. They're all things that we can do in our lives to respond to things which can shape the outcome. Now, when it comes into this kind of stuff, and this is where I want to put some caveats around it because I don't fully ascribe to all of that, okay? I believe it is true that it can affect the outcome. I don't believe it's true that it can guarantee the outcome. How many of you want friends or like friends? How many of you have ever thought in your life, I wish I had more friends? Anyone? I've heard so many times in church people say, I just haven't got enough friends. Well, I want to say, if you want friends, you have to sow friendship. Okay? That's the law of sowing and reaping. That's how we respond. If you want friends, you want to have this as an outcome, you have to sow friendship. Now, here's where it changes from this kind of approach. If you sow friendship, it does not necessarily guarantee that you'll get that friendship back. How many of you know that's true? So the danger with this kind of approach, all right, and I see and read lots of stuff and I listen to it and I'm open to the Holy Spirit, you have to interpret it and be 
wise about that, understand what the Bible says. The danger is we can tend to think that somehow that this is a law that will always give us the outcome that we want. Now there is a law dynamic to sowing and reaping, a little bit like the law of gravity. If you throw yourself off a very tall building, as you're hurtling toward the floor, you can pray. God will give you a pardon, he will not give you a parachute, okay? So that's, that's because the law of gravity is at work. But the law of sowing and reaping is like, if I sow the right things, it will give me a better outcome, but it may not give me the outcome I want. It isn't a guaranteed formula in that same kind of way. That's where I think lots of people in the church get this wrong. You get into this when it comes to the whole area of finances. If I sow this, then God's going to give me that. Please, that is such a distortion of the word of God. And I think that we have to look at this. But I'll tell you what, if you sow bad things or don't sow at all, you can guarantee what your outcome is going to be. Are you with me? So there's something in this, which is our response to situations will shape and influence the outcome. It may not always be the outcome we want, but I guarantee if we sow the right things, we'll get the outcome that God wants. It says in the book of Galatians, chapter 6 and verse 7, Do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, or in sowing righteousness, you could say. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest, if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good. Let us sow righteousness to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See, the other thing about this is you have to check your motive. A lot of this kind of stuff in the workplace environment is often about how do I get the outcome I want. The danger with that is that we can say, do you know what, if I want a better outcome, I ought to be loving. I ought to have integrity. I ought to tell the truth. Actually, you ought to do that anyway. As a believer, you don't do that because you want a good outcome. You do that because it's the right thing to do. And that's the slight subtle flip which is really important when you look at this kind of stuff. Now, let, let's go to another kind of pair of life. Let's go to farming. How many of you can just take a wild guess at this? Which part of the farming process do you think the farmer is most energized by? Is it breaking up ground? Getting out there with the pickaxes and the shovels and all that kind of stuff in the rain or the ice or the snow and breaking up the ground. Is it planting the seed? Is it cultivating it day after day and watching for little shoots? Or is it when the harvest is reaped and he's off to the market for the profits? Just take a wild guess. Just take a wild guess. Which part of the process? The last one. The reaping. And when it comes to the spiritual, when it comes to the spiritual, so many of us as believers, and I, I, I know that... All of you might not necessarily class yourself as that. But many of us as believers, we are just as excited about the reaping as the farmer is. And the rest of the process we're not so excited about. And so in John chapter 4, verse 35, when Jesus says to the disciples, Do not say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. They were excited. We all get excited. I've heard so many preachers preach about that verse. I've preached about that verse. And sometimes we've done a little disservice because we think that somehow this is an all-time, all-place, all-people truth and it's clearly not. So we preach it to say, look, there's a harvest then, it's ready for harvest. And that's clearly not true. Because in Jesus' life and ministry, there were certain places and times and people where the Bible said he could do nothing there. Isn't that true? 
He could do nothing there. He had to move on because that place wasn't ready for harvest. But in this story, the context of that quote, or that, that verse rather, is in John chapter 4 when he's just had the encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. She's gone to tell people, you've got to meet this amazing guy. They're all coming towards him and he's saying to his boys, the fields are right for harvest. Look, all these people are ready for harvest. Fantastic. At other times, that wasn't true. But if it's not ready for harvest, can I say, it's always ready for sowing. It's always ready for sowing. And we have got so obsessed with harvest and with fruit, and I understand that, that we've missed out the mo- one of the most important things. If you do not sow, there will be no harvest. We have to regain that, that passion for sowing where we may not even see the harvest in our lifetime. Sowing is the long, slow, behind-the-scenes process of preparing an individual or an entire culture to be able to hear and believe the gospel. I, I, when I started to look at this, I thought, oh, crikey, a whole sermon on one verse. Now like, there's so much that I want to say. I believe that this word, I'm hoping and praying that this could release many of you from the envy or from the feeling uh, of being belittled when you think about all the reapers in the kingdom of God and the people that have great stories about healing and salvation, and I love all of that, I want to release you by the word of God from that pressure and from also that, I believe, not right kind of approach because actually sowing is a vital part of the kingdom of God. And if, and if I, some people didn't sow into my life, there would have been nothing to reap. And you and I may be here on planet earth to sow into people's lives. We may never see the fruit with our own eyes. But do you know what? We don't get focused on the outcome like that because we want to respond and do the right things. We want to shape our lives the right way according to the word of God. Amen? And we want to live that way because God says that's the right way to live. So first we need to lay some foundations. Matthew chapter 13. If you can turn there, that would be brilliant. And this is a a well-known parable, I'm sure, to many of you, perhaps not to all of you, but I'm going to read just a little bit of it. Matthew 13, it says in verse 3, Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, there's three, if you like, main characters in this parable. And this really works for a preacher, because there's a sower, the seed, and the soil. And so the questions that we're asking are, what's, or who is the sower, what is the seed, And what does Jesus mean when he refers to soil? I want to suggest to you that there are two ways of us understanding this parable. And in both cases, the seed is the same. The seed is the word of God. Okay? The Bible, the word of God, the truth of God. Now, it's referred to as seed because, because the word of God is alive and active. In fact, interestingly enough, they they discovered some seeds uh, in an Egyptian mummy's tomb that had been there thousands of years. Just there, just sitting there in the sand, 
thousands of years. They found the seeds, they planted the seeds, the seeds germinated and grew. It was amazing. Because there's life and power in the seed. And so in both applications of this parable, the seed refers to the Word of God. Now in the first way we're going to look at it, I want to suggest to you that, that the sower is Jesus. And he sows the seed. Now, so what's the soil? What, what do we mean by the soil? Well, if you look, there are four types of soil. There's hard soil. A little bit of background. In, a, in the Middle Eastern field um, where the sower is sowing the seed, there would be paths in between, okay? And they would be walked on and traveled on by, by um, uh, carts and by animals. And those paths were the hard paths. They would get pressed down and beaten down. And when the seed is sown, the sower just throws it out like that. It lands into soil, but it also lands on the hard path. And because it lands on the hard path, it doesn't take root and germinate, and the bird comes and takes the seed away. That's the hard path. The rocky soil is not soil full of rocks, but it's very thin soil that looks great on the outside, but is on a, on a layer of limestone. So the seed goes into the soil, starts to germinate, starts to take root, but then as the root comes down, it hits the rock, can get no nutrients, and the life is stopped. The weed-filled soil is, again, is ploughed soil, it's turned over soil, it looks great, but in the turning over of the soil, the seeds and the roots of briars and weeds and thorns are still there. How many have done Community Action Day gardens? We all know what, what I'm talking about. We've all done that and said, oh, it looks great. But then when we look closer, we think, mm, in about three weeks, this is going to be back again. Let's get away quick. Okay? And so it's that, that's what it means, really. It looks great. It's turned over, but all the weeds and, and the thorns and the briars are all still in there waiting to grow and to choke out the life of the plant. And then there's the good soil, which takes the seed and the seed germinates and the seed takes root and it brings a yield. And most farmers would be ecstatic with the kind of yield that Jesus talks about here. 30, 60 or even 100 times. So what does this all mean? I've always thought that these four soils relate to four types of people. I think I was wrong. I think they can relate to that, but I don't think that's really what Jesus is getting at. See, I believe that these four soils relate to four different types of my heart, oh where am I, response. I believe these four soils are descriptions of four different types of heart response. You see, sometimes my heart is hard to the word of God. And God speaks, but I don't know, because it's, this part of my life has been beaten down or pressed down, or because I'm resistant, or I'm proud, or I'm stubborn, and I can be all of those things. The word comes and bang, and it's gone. But then sometimes... My heart is kind of rocky. In other words, how many of you have ever a situation where you've responded to God and you said, oh yes God, I'm going to do that and you've come out to the front and you've written something down and, you've done it, and then next week you've forgotten about it. Because it didn't take any root. It was shallow soil. And sometimes we can be like that as Christians. A bit of what I call the Tarzan syndrome. You know the old Tarzan films. You, you, we're looking from swinging from one high to the next. You know, just kind of, that's how we live our Christian life. Can we just get to a high place? Go to another. And there's the shallowness. There's no rootedness. I can be like that. We can all be like that. What about the weed-filled soil where God can speak into an area of my life, but there's so many other things going on. There's so many cares. There's so many things choking. It chokes the life out. But sometimes God speaks into me, and my soil is ready and open, and it takes root, and it germinates, and it grows. Sometimes my heart can respond in all four ways on the same day. And so can yours. 
And when Jesus is telling this parable, I think the first application is this. That he's saying, listen, you are the soil. Your heart is the soil. Check the soil of your heart. Is your soil's heart good and open, turned over, opened up so that when I speak, the word will take root and will germinate? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9, interesting four words. Only ever, only ever time this is referred to in the Bible. You know, often the New Testament talks about the church being the body, the army of God, the bride of Christ, the flock. And then in, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, you are God's field. The only time it comes in the whole Bible where it refers to us as a field. You are God's field. And I think that connects to this. Is the soil of your heart open and turned over and soft and ready to receive the word of God? And can I tell you, the responsibility, the responsibility for this is only in the hands of you. This is not your husband's responsibility or your wife's. This is not your parents or your kids. This is not the church's. It's not mine for you. The only person who's responsible for the response is you. The only person responsible to God for my response is me. You know, years ago I made a commitment to God which I've tried to keep up, um, my commitment was, God, whenever you speak, whoever you speak through, whether I've heard the, the message a million times, whether I like the style of the person speaking or not, whoever, I, whoever you speak through, whether it's in a book or in a song or, or even in a meeting, if you speak, God, I want to respond. And I made a commitment to God that that would include responding, you know, if someone gives an altar call for something, if God's spoken to me, I'll respond. Doesn't matter from the pastor or leading the church, I want to be responsive to God. I haven't always been able to follow through that in the way that I'd like. But that's been my heart's intention. Because I know that the responsibility for my soil lies with me. So I want to ask you a question this morning before we move to the other application. How is your soil today? How's the soil of your heart today? Is it hard? Is it rocky? Is it shallow? Is it other weeds? You know, is the or is it open? Why don't you just close your eyes with me for a moment. I want to ask Pat and Mark to come back. And What I'm going to ask us we do is just to create a little few minutes of space where you could just talk to Jesus yourself. I'm going to ask Pat to sing a song. It's really old, so old, uh, some of you won't even know it. But it's the only song I can find that says these words that I want it to say. And as Pat sings this over you, I'd just like you to close your eyes if you can. And just don't think about everybody else. And this is definitely not the time to start thinking, mm, hard-hearted people, I know a few of them. Shallow people. This is not about that. This is, Lord, what is there in me that needs to soften? Because if you could help me soften my heart, I'd be so much more able to respond to your word. And yes, God can help you do that. And the song is inviting God to do that. But you are the one that has to do that. You are the one that has to say, Lord, soften my heart. You are the one that has to take responsibility. And then God can come and do that. So just a couple of minutes before we switch gear, just let God speak to you. And you speak to God yourself. God, we just pray that you, you will help us to be people whose soil is always open and soft, whose heart is ready to respond Whatever events life throws at us or whatever situations we find ourselves in, Lord, we can choose a response that is the kind of response that you'd want us to choose. Lord, whether to sow or to reap or break or seek, God, we can choose that. Lord, I pray that our soil would be soft and good and open. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks, guys. But you know, there is a, another application for this. Um, that Jesus is the sower, the seed is the word of God, and the soil is our heart response. But in another sense, the sower is also us. The word is still, um, the seed is still the word, and the soil would be the heart response of others. And this is where it comes into this whole issue of sowing righteousness, of being people who sow into lives and into our culture, that process, that long often process of sowing into lives and into culture. What do we mean by this? I want to put a photograph up for you. I don't know if you know who this gentleman is or was. Not if you're in the nine o'clock, you don't, okay. Anyone know? How about if any of you know his name? Kim Philby? Some of you will have heard, okay. Some of you haven't got a clue, all right. Okay, Kim Philby. Let me just tell you who Kim Philby was. In 1939, so it's going back a little bit, all right. Um, he was recruited by MI6. By 1949, he'd become um, a chief intelligence officer based in Washington, D.C. for the British intelligence services. There was one point when this fella nearly took the top job in the whole of the British intelligence services. The only problem was he was a Soviet spy, And for years, him along with others, people like Burgess and McLean and Brunt, they all became aspiring, called moles. Have you ever heard that? If you've seen spooks, you'll understand what I mean by that, modernise it a little bit. But these guys grew up in England, went to Cambridge and Oxford and all these places, and they were recruited by the British intelligence, but they they really were Soviet spies. They were agents infiltrating our nation, our intelligence services. Now... Here's the interesting thing about being a mole, okay? There are three things that you have to have. Number one, he or she must be a part of the country they hope to infiltrate. So it's no good being a spy if you don't speak the language and you don't understand not only the language but the customs and the mannerisms. You have to become one of us. If you're going to be an effective spy, this just might help you in some of your future career plans, you need to be able to become one of them, but one of us. But the second thing is, he or she must spend years rising to a level of influence to build trust and respect. Thirdly, he or she must never forget where their real heart allegiance lies. Now you might think that's a really tenuous link into what our role is. And and I know that's about deception and dishonor and that's not what I'm talking about. But in a real sense, you and I are called to be moles in our culture to sow righteousness to never forget where our real heart allegiance lies. And you might think, oh, I don't believe that. Where do you get that from the Bible? Nehemiah was one of these. Daniel was one of these. Esther was one of these. Joseph was one of these. They were people in a culture, okay, that understood the culture, that understood the language, that understood the stories and everything. They spent years rising to levels of influence and, 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 um, and trust and respect, but they never forgot where their real allegiance lies. They were citizens of that country, but really they were citizens of heaven. I was brought up in a church environment where it was about separating out of the world and being in this kind of holy huddle. And I'm not criticizing that, but that was really short in terms of what the Bible really meant us to be. Not as separate out from the world, but as really integrated in the world, but in our hearts, separate in terms of values, principles. That we, we, we exist to, to serve the king, don't we? 
But where he's placed us as moles is into a real context. Let me give you another example. William Wilberforce. Anyone heard of William Wilberforce? At the age of 21, William Wilberforce was a member of Parliament in the 1700s or whenever it was. 1700s. And, um, but but it, two or three years into that, he was a believer and he was wrestling with this whole thing of calling. He felt, you know, I want to serve God with my one and only life. And so he went along to a minister for some counsel. The minister's name was John Newton who um, wrote Amazing Grace and who previously was a slave trader okay, before he was converted. And he said to him, I want to serve God with my one and only life and I feel called by God. Do I stay as an MP or do I leave Parliament and become a minister like you? His advice to Wilberforce was stay where you are. You can serve Jesus exactly where you are. He spent the rest of his life as an MP sowing seeds of righteousness and his big mandate wasn't the only thing he did was to see the abolition of slavery and him along with the Clapham sect a group of other guys and girls were amazingly powerfully used by God on his deathbed he hears the news that parliament's just passed the law to start about the, the, the end of the abolition of slavery so from 23 early to early 20s right through to his deathbed he spent years as a mole infiltrating never forgetting where his real allegiance lies and he just began to see the fruit on his deathbed isn't that amazing? You and I are called to sow into our culture. At the start of this year, I want to tell you, church, we have to regain the ministry and the high calling of sowing. We have to sow. If you do that, it's an inside job. And we need to understand the culture in which we are sowing. It is a different world now to when I was a kid. And it's a different world to when you were a kid, however old you are. Let me just give you a little example. How many of you uh, can remember how many TV channels you had when you were a kid? 300? 200? 100? How many? Three. How many of you remember Channel 4 coming? Channel 5. Now, there are hundreds and hundreds. Of, it's a totally different world. When you were a kid, an iPad was something you put on your eye, wasn't it? Huh? That's what it was. <laughs> Do you know that Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all that stuff, none of that existed more than 10 years ago? The world in which we live in is radically different from 10, 20, 15 years ago, 30 years ago. Radically different. Things like consumerism, individualism, biblical illiteracy. Someone, a teacher came to me at the end of the 9 o'clock service said she was responsible for the RE curriculum in the school. There were only eight Bible stories in the whole curriculum. That's including Easter and Christmas. Biblical illiteracy, pluralism, tolerance, institutional skepticism, complex family systems, globalization. You know, when Billy Graham, great evangelist, when he came and preached the gospel here in England first in the 1950s, preached at Haringey, when he preached the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins and what the Bible says, he was preaching into a soil that understood what he was saying. They may not have been Christian, but they understood the Christian moral foundation. That is not the same soil today, folks. And if we think, and please hear this right, if we think that we can just declare the same message in the same way, but to different soil and get the same results, we're mistaken. Now, repentance and forgiveness and what the Bible says are all valid and all important, but we have to understand we are preaching and sowing into a really different culture. The soil is different. And just as Jesus found, you know what, I can't do anything in this place, I'm going to do this place. Just as Jesus found that in his day, we also find it. 
We need to sow into the soil in a, in a different way. And um, in your notes, I've given you kind of like a table. I'm not going to spend the time on it really. It just shows you the difference between the harvester and the sower and their different focuses. I'm going to leave it there because I want to move on to something else that I really want to say this morning. You see, one of the main areas, in fact, probably the chief area that the majority of people in this room that I'm speaking to are called to be sowers into is the area of the workplace. Take a look at the screen. It's really clever and really creative, but there's so much in that if we could just get that on board. And, um, you know, there's an old preacher quote, and I have to say I've used it myself, um, Something along the line of, you know, nobody on their deathbed is going to say, I wish I spent more time in the office. Anyone ever heard that? And I've said that myself. And actually, it feels like it's a bit of a morning to say I was wrong. But I was wrong. Because Einstein said on his deathbed, I wish I had more mathematics. The French composer Ravel said on his deathbed, I have so much more music in me. When Charles Darwin said, if only I'd had more time to complete my research. Because there's something deep in the human psyche that I think God has put there, which is a sense of fulfillment and meaning and purpose, which comes from work. Because God created us to work. See, one of the things that we misunderstand about this is that we think that work was given to Adam as a punishment for his sin. You know, it's like sometimes when you're having a bad day at the office, you say, I'm only here in this job because of Adam's sin. And that's not true. God didn't give Adam work as a punishment for his sin. Work came before the fall. What happened as a result of the fall was there was a disconnection from the presence of God. And so work lost its fulfillment because he was disconnected from God, from the Creator. God always gave us work to be in relationship with Him. You see, work is, is not about, it's not about the, it's about the presence of God right where you are, which brings meaning and fulfillment. When we understand who we are, who created us, what they've created us to do, where they place us, that God goes with us wherever we are. That's where fulfillment and meaning and purpose can come. You know, the, the Puritans, um, through a group of believers hundreds of years ago, I won't go into who they were if you don't know, they believed that all professions were spiritual, not because of the nature of the work, but because of the presence of God. And wouldn't it be amazing if tomorrow morning, every single person, and I know that this message is more relevant to most of you than it is, say, to me or to Dan. And perhaps we don't have the right in one sense to speak into this, but this is the Word of God, which kind of gives us the right. But you know, wouldn't it be amazing if tomorrow morning every single person that was heading into a workplace went knowing that God was not only with them, but God had placed them there to be a sower of righteousness. Because only you can sow righteous seeds where you are if you are the only believer in that place. I can't do it for you. Church can't do it for you. You are, you are the person that God has placed you to be in that place and in that situation. There is another extreme though with this work is worship. Some believers, I've heard in this last 15, 20 years, who love this kind of theology. Because what it does is it almost gives them a reason to validate their belief that actually they want to worship their work. Which is not the same as saying work is worship. And actually, they say, John, that just gives me the, 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 the kind of, you know, the permission to just to throw myself into my work and just, that's all I want to do. And I'm not interested in church. I'm not interested in community. I'm not interested in any of that because that's where God wants it. That's my mission. And actually, they end up worshipping their work. And that's not the same as seeing their work as worship. Do you understand? You see, to sow 
means to attempt to introduce God in some way into the life of every individual you regularly encounter. You are there at work to sow, which means to introduce God to every single person that you encounter. Let me give you another example of this from a different field. On Friday night, I think Andy mentioned it in the, his interview earlier on. Friday night, I was on the youth rotor, which I am occasionally because of my cultural relevance. Uh, not. Uh, and I was on the youth rotor, and we had 124 teenagers on Friday night, which was great. And as, that, as we opened the door, and they literally trampled and stampeded in, I hid behind the tuck shop as I normally do. But it was really interesting. At the start of that, we had like a team meeting. And actually, Paul Campbell, I think, is here this morning, one of our uh, young guys there, he actually led that team meeting, which was awesome. And uh, he encouraged us, uh, along with the other guys, to really think about every single person that was going to come that night and the opportunities we had to have a conversation with them. And he said, you know, it may only be one conversation, but that one conversation, that one person is like a seed. And who knows what God will do with that. Then at the end of the night... We all gathered uh, in the room again to talk about the conversations we'd had. And then Charlene, who was leading that night as well, she said, okay, who had a conversation about family? People would put their hands up and we count the hands. We count the conversations that we had. Who had a conversation about school, college, work, sexual health, drugs, drink, gangs, God, faith, Jesus? Hands were going up all the time on all those subjects. And I came away from that thinking, do you know what? For years we've been doing this Friday Night Youth Club. And for years we've had these kids come who've grown up now and are young adults, you know. And we've been so frustrated because we don't see enough of them become Christians. And I'm still frustrated with that. But I came away Friday night thinking, but do you know what? We've been sowing some seeds. We have been sowing some seeds faithfully through the ministry of this church for years into the lives of teenagers and many others. And who knows what God might do with some of those seeds that are spoken, conversations, introducing God in some way into the life of a person. And when you're at work, your goal there is to introduce God to every single person that you meet. Now, how do you do that? Well, before the sower can introduce his co-workers to God, he must introduce God to his work. That's really important what I just said. Before you can introduce your co-workers to God, you have to introduce God to your work. Is it time for a soil test in this area? Let me ask you a few questions. How many of you got a job? How many of you work? A lot of you. Some of you that don't, we're going to pray about that and talk into that in a moment. But if you're in a job in some, some context, I want you to think about some questions. What does it mean to both be a Christian and hold your job? What does it mean for you to hold that job and to be a Christian? What does that really mean? Secondly, how would I do my job differently if I weren't a Christian? You see, if you're going to say, do you know what, I wouldn't do it any differently, then something's wrong, isn't it? How would you do your job differently if you weren't a Christian? What biblical principles most apply to my daily responsibilities? So when you're doing your daily responsibilities, do you think, how would God want me to do this? Now, I don't mean over every single thing, all right? And I'm not saying that you drop to your knees, all right? You know, when the boss says, go and do this, and you drop to your knees, I'll pray about it. I'm not asking you to do that and be stupid. But how do biblical principles apply to your daily responsibilities? How should my faith affect the way I relate to other people in the workplace, including my boss? How should your faith affect the way you do that? Here's another one. Can I connect with other believers who also work in the same sector that I do? 
On your um, bulletin, there's a, there's a breakfast coming up on the f- 1st of February. It's early in the morning. I know many of you can't do it because it's not early enough, but it's 7 till 9 at the Village Hotel. So an event that we do is the net and try and gather people together who work in different sectors and who, who are believers. So just, just, just one thing that you could do with other Christians from other churches who may be nurses like you or may be teachers like you or may be in business like you, etc. Do I ever introduce God into my work life in a verbal way. You see, as well as living out your faith and doing a good job and not nicking the money from church and you know what I mean, doing all those obvious things, do we ever introduce God into a conversation with anyone? And that has to be done appropriately and it has to be done when you built that trust and built that respect and built that bridge. But wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be absolutely amazing if every single one of us left this building in a few minutes' time with our kind of head up high and our shoulders back saying, do you know what? I'm working for the King of Kings. I'm on a mission. And God has placed me somewhere to be his salt and to be his light. And I'm going to sow righteousness. Now listen, it means that at times you are going to get it wrong and people are going to say, and you call yourself a Christian. Anyone ever had that? You're going to get that. You're just going to have to suck that up And take that to God and say, God, I've messed up again. But you know what? Just because I messed up does not mean that you won't use me tomorrow. I want to, just as we finish, I want to read you a few stories. These are real life stories from people in this church of how God has used them in the workplace. And they range across the whole range of this thing. So... Someone knows that their work colleague is in, is in hospital and their baby has been in, in hospital for three months. Okay, complications at birth. So sends her an email. This is the response. Thank you. What lovely words. I'm sitting here in the children's hospital for the first time looking at my emails and I've just come to the one you sent. It has made my day when I opened your email. It is so kind to think that people are thinking about us at this time. It's just an email. Sowing a seed, isn't it? Sowing a seed. Here's a longer one. I changed projects at work in 2000 and I worked there until October 2008 when I was made redundant. During that time, the whole team I was working with became Christians. Not. (laughs) No, the reality is I did have a number of, of meaningful and spiritual conversations with one guy. He had a number of things happening in his life and me and my wife said we would pray into that and we still do. The rest of the team of about eight people I had little impact upon it would seem, although we never know. I had a number of spiritual conversations in the office which everyone could hear because I sat next to an atheist and we would discuss things from time to time. A number of the team were Hindu to a greater or lesser extent. One day, one of the guys who'd just come back from a fortnight in the sun somewhere, he said, have you ever heard of Charles Price? I was rather taken aback. Yes, I said. Some years ago, I was on a holiday conference where he was the main speaker and I have a number of his books. Why do you ask? He then told me he'd been switching through the TV channels in his hotel and came across the God channel and Charles Price was speaking. He spent an hour listening to him, much to the amazement of his family. And then the guy says, I find it so easy to get the work situation upside down, to think that I should be trying to reach people in the office for Jesus and plead to God for his help, when actually God wants everyone in my office to come to him. He is already at work, but he'd rather like to use me in his work. Just that sense of a mind shift, you know what I mean? God is at work, but I'm there for a reason. And is there a connection? Here's one from a teacher. At my work, people have known me to be a Christian and someone who lives by faith. As a result, people started to speak to me differently when I worked in my last school. When people were down or struggling, they'd find their way to my door. Their reason being, you're a man of faith. Would you listen and support me and pray for me? 
Whilst no one wanted prayer on the spot in the room, they requested that I would pray for them. They saw God and Christians as people who would listen and care. That's phenomenal, isn't it? We should get excited about that. Now, the next story you will get excited about because there's a reaping bit in it. But we should get as excited at the sowing stories as we do about the reaping ones. Do you understand? Guys, we may be a generation. I don't want to prophesy, please God. But we may be a generation whose role it is, is to sow for other people to reap. Because do you know what? If we don't sow, there ain't going to be any reaping. We as a church in this nation have to get it into our heads that we have to sow into the culture of our soil. If God, by his grace and mercy, is going to bring a harvest. Here's the last one. I used to work as a medical secretary in a hospital. My office overlooked a staff car park, so I saw many people passing to and fro. One day I noticed a lady I hadn't seen before, and I felt a nudge in my spirit that I should pray for her. After a few weeks, having seen her and prayed for her regularly, a Christian friend who worked in the pharmacy said she wanted to introduce me to a new lady colleague who had just become a Christian. When I met her, it was the lady I'd been praying for. Isn't that amazing? And I want to say, guys, every single one of you are in a place where you can make a difference. We'd love to hear more stories like this. We'd love to hear more stories like this. Why don't we stand together? I'm going to ask the band to come back. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, and I will self-destruct in five seconds, all right? Some of you are open. (laughs) Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to commit yourself to sow righteousness regardless of the circumstances of your life. That's your mission. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to attempt to introduce God in some way into the life of every individual you regularly encounter. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to see yourself along with the reaper as vital and integral players in the work of the kingdom of God. It's not just the reaper, guys. It's not just the reapers. It's the sowers. There's no reaping without sowing. So I want to pray for you this morning. And before I pray for you, all of you, to almost kind of like release you and just affirm you in who you are, I also want to acknowledge that there are some of you here today and the whole issue of the workplace is really painful and really difficult. And I'm aware that for many of you, you're under pressure right now. Perhaps you haven't got a job. You are one of those many people in this country who are looking for a job. Or, or your job's under threat and you live with that. Many of you have lived with that for a long time. Or you're in a job, but you're just under so much personal pressure. You're finding it really, really hard to cope. Well, I want us to pray for you this morning. You know, there's some of the most beautiful words in the New Testament are in the end of the book of 2 Timothy, where Paul finds himself in a prison. And he's really honest and he says, you know, this guy, he left me. He deserted me. This guy did me a great deal of harm. Only he's with me. And, I, I, you know, and he says, I'm cold and I'm... I feel weak and I'm hurt and and he's just really honest. He's in a place of pressure. But then he says this, But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. He's saying, this is the reality. This is who I am. He's saying, you know, I'm under pressure. All of these events have happened to me. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. I'm going to choose to respond. I'm going to choose to invite God into this place of pressure. I want to just pray for you. So if this morning you are one of those people and work for you is a place of pressure, either because you haven't got a job 
you're looking for a job, it's under threat, or just because it's so pressured right now, I'd like you to do something for me. I'd just like you to sit down. I'd just like you to sit down. The reason I want to ask you to sit down is because I just felt God speak to me this morning to say, ask people to sit down. Because for so long they've been standing up and they need a rest. And they just need to be reminded that God is the God who fights on our behalf. That our rest comes from God. That we are seated in Christ in heavenly places. So just sit down right where you are. And then as I pray for you, it would be awesome if people who are standing could just put their hand on that person's shoulder. And I'm going to pray. Father God, I want to pray for all of these dear people here who are sat down right now. Lord, they're under pressure. Lord God, I pray that you would stand at their side and give them strength. And just as they feel and sense people around them standing and putting their hands on their shoulders, God, would this just be in some way just a reflection of the truth that you are the God who stands at our side and gives us strength. Lord, I pray specifically for those who are out of work right now who are, who are, or who are facing the fear of redundancy. Lord, would you stand at their side and give them strength? Lord, would you release the right job to them, I pray in Jesus' name. God, would you give them strength and would you give them courage? And Lord, I pray that as the enemy seeks to attack their identity and their value and their worth, I pray that you would rebuff that in Jesus' name. Their identity, their value and their worth is not in their job. It's in who they are in you. Lord, would they know that, I pray. And Father, for those who are just facing pressure at work, would you be the God who eases pressure? Would you be the God who stands in the middle of pressure? Would you be the God who, like those three guys in the fiery furnace, all of a sudden you're there in the middle of the fire with them? Lord, I pray that you would presence yourself in their lives, in their workplace. This week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We all stand and we're going to sing a song as we finish. And I love this song. And the song speaks about a revival and a new generation. And we think about harvesting then. But don't just think about harvesting. Think about a revival of sowing as well. Think about a revival of people who were sent into the workplace to be God's missionaries. And I want to pray for you as we sing this song. So let, let me just pray and then we'll sing. Father, I want to pray, Lord God, for every person who's here in this building today. God, I pray that you would put within us just a a real resolution not even a resolution but a real sense of commitment that we are going to sow righteousness that we're going to be a people who sow righteousness wherever we are that God we're going to sow into relationships God we're going to sow into our own relationship with with you we're going to sow into mission we're going to sow into the workplace we're going to sow Lord God righteousness and God I pray that you would release Lord, a great army of sowers to go out into our culture and they would sow seeds. And God, I pray that if we get the opportunity to to reap any of that, then that's awesome and we'll take that. But God, if we don't, we will continue to sow because of what you've done and who you are in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.